A robber was robbing a house, and all of a sudden, someone said, Jesus is watching you. What? Oh, well, said the robber and went back to work. When he started to pick up, this must be old. When he started to pick up the VCR. <laughs> Let's just switch it. When he started to pick up the DVR, he heard the voice again. Jesus is watching you, it said again. And this time, the robber pointed his flashlight to the voice and asked, Who said that? It was a parrot. I'm Moses, said the parrot. Who in the world would name you Moses, asked the robber. The parrot answered, the same man that named the pit bull in the corner, Jesus. (laughs) You, You like that. Apparently that's not offensive. Uh, there's a gentleman who, there used to be this thing called Vine. Anyone ever know that they're about Vine, six-second videos, they shut it down or someone bought it? And David Lopez was one of my favorite Viners. He's Hispanic, and so his, his cousin's name is Jesus. And so his, his girlfriend was explaining to him one day that, that she, has fallen, she has met and fallen in love with Jesus. And he runs out and starts attacking his cousin anyway. <laughs> it's way funnier to show you the Vine, but I'm not going to do that. Jesus, I kill you. Okay. What are the causes of spiritual health? Or what is the state of being that we call spiritual health? And what is different psychologically when a person is in a state of health than when we're not? Just real quick bullet points. When we're healthy, our hearts see God clearly. And seeing God clearly produces a corresponding emotional life and attitude life. When we're healthy, for example, acts of radical generosity occur. I can think of like four people in our church who, when in a condition or in a state of what we might call revival, but I think Bible would just call health, four different people that I can think of at Gateway who just gave a vehicle to someone. Like, here's my truck, take it. Here's my minivan, here's my car. That seems really, like, radical. But in the kingdom, that seems fairly normal. When we're in a place of spiritual health, our prayers are constant and confident that God is hearing and answering and that our prayers are the most practical thing we could do, the most powerful thing that we could do. When we're healthy, there's an increase of, uh, I want to say, churchward social activity. And I don't mean church word as in the focus of our social life is us, but I mean there's a gathering together with the Lord's people that happens when we're in a state of health. And the pursuit of the kingdom, the priorities of God's mission, the, the priority of hearing his voice and taking quick action each day happen when we're in a place of spiritual health. When we're healthy, we tend to obey the Lord's promptings really quickly instead of making excuses. But circumstantially, there's really not much different. I'm just going to let that settle in for a little bit. Even though I don't think I'm that deep, that seems like a basic reality. That when we're in a place of spiritual health, it's not like suddenly the whole world around us becomes, things keep going wrong. Other people keep doing wrong. Life is still the mix of ugly and beauty that it normally is. And the only difference is that 
spiritual realities which are always true, we actually hold as true when we're healthy. Health is normal in the kingdom, but it's so unusual for many of us that we come up with special words to talk about it like revival. We're praying for revival. Well, that's good, um, but you can substitute normal. We're praying to become normal because Jesus is the norm. He is normal, and all the rest of us are crazy. The difference between an overcoming believer and a weary, worn-out, despairing believer is not typically circumstances. Joy, rather than despair, is not usually a matter of what is or isn't true. It's a matter of what news you entertain and focus on and keep before your eyes. What truths are we allowing to grow big in our understanding? I might have shared this with you already, I don't know, but one of my favorite uh, voices for spiritual uh, in, input is a, a gentleman who's in heaven now. His name is Dallas Willard, and I want to recommend to you all of his books, uh, especially um, his writing on discipleship. It's, he has a series, and they're all thick books. Carrie, years and years ago, discovered, which one was it? The Divine Conspiracy. And it's, it's a book that if you talk to pastors who've already burnt out, like they've gone through the midlife crisis, they tried to do a megachurch thing, and then they were like, this isn't fun, something's missing, and then they like get a deeper relationship with the Lord. Many of them point to Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, as to what set them back on a path where maybe this is actually about Jesus and being formed in him. So I want to recommend everything he ever wrote to you, Dallas Willard. But I was listening to him, and a young pastor was asking him, Dallas, how do I fix the church? And and this was his answer. Arrange your life in such a way that you are experiencing enduring hope, peace, and joy in Jesus. Which is a fascinating answer, you know what I mean? That's That's a fascinating answer. He did not give him leadership advice. He didn't give him strategies or principles. He didn't give him structures. He didn't give him, you know, here's what the Bible says about eldership. Here's what the Bible says about spiritual gift. He doesn't say, he doesn't doesn't even say it's about fasting and prayer. He simply says, your focus on getting the church healthy is misguided. Your focus must be on your grasp, your, your... rootedness in Christ the reality as a person and then you'll manifest that and the manifestation of your peace the manifestation of your hope the manifestation of your joy will do a greater thing to bring health to others than any strategy, structure, program sermon, song you could ever produce Arrange your life in such a way that you are experiencing enduring hope, joy, and peace in Jesus. You can apply that to everything. How can I fix my marriage? How can I help my kids know Jesus? How can I fix my church or my employer or my my friend? Arrange your life in such a way that you are experiencing enduring hope, joy, 
and peace in Jesus. Again, the king, in the kingdom, that's just called normal. But in the world, that is so rare as to look upside down. Um, I, as a disciple of Jesus, I've become convinced that Jesus is the expert on life. He's the expert. And so my shortcut to brilliance is to just stick, to, stick close to Jesus. Well, another one of my heroes, E. Stanley Jones, wrote a book called The Christ of the Indian Road as a missionary. And I don't remember when he wrote that, 1920s or 30s. And 40 years later, like the eighth edition of that book was being released, or six, there's some outlandish number of versions being released. And he, and he came back and he said, it was the preface to the sixth edition. I read the preface to it and he said, this is unusual. I've written a lot of books over my many years, but 40 years later, I wouldn't change a thing that I wrote in this book. And that puzzled me. I've learned so much. I've grown so much. I've changed so much. How is it that 40 years have gone by and I wouldn't change anything I wrote in this book? And he said the answer was, in the pages of this book, I stuck close to the person of Jesus. Is your shortcut to brilliance. He understands life better than anyone who has ever lived. And if you don't believe that, that is terrifying. Because if you believe someone else has a better grasp on how life works best, guess who you're going to be a disciple of? Instead of Jesus. Like that'll happen in 0.2 seconds. If you think someone else knows better than Jesus how you conduct your life, how you... All right, okay. So anyway, what we call revival is usually just the result of people arranging their lives in such a way, arranging their schedules in such a way, arranging their heart, arranging their focus in such a way as to come back to the basic experience of what has always been available and always been true. So what we're after in life as disciples, what we're after, I think, is not a life that's marked by enough spikes of revival to get us to basically good enough. Spike and then... uh, then, uh, uh. The sound effects were nice there, weren't they? Uh, Okay. What we're after is Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, Colossians 2, Ephesians 3, a tree deeply rooted by streams of water whose leaf never withers, who bears its fruit in season and bears its fruit out of season. What we're after is, is you know, Colossians 2 being so rooted in Christ, growing up into Christ, Ephesians 3, rooted and grounded in his love so that his love becomes the sap that flows up through us so that Christ himself is flowing out of us so that we are actually dwelling in him. He said in John chapter 8, if you abide or continue in my word, then you're my learners, you're my disciples indeed, and then you'll know the truth, and knowing the truth will make you free. And that word, if you continue, that same word for continue is used in John 15. Abide, continue, remain in me. And that's an interesting word, because it doesn't just mean keep thinking about. It means keep thinking about, keep chewing on, keep meditating on, and keep doing my word. All right. Human emotions 
If you look closely at human emotions, human emotions are typically caused by the beliefs that underlie them. If you believe everything is going to be amazing today, your emotions will reflect that. And if you believe everything is going wrong and that your life will get worse and worse and that everyone around you will betray you, your emotions will reflect that reality as well. And because humans are capable of complicated, complex, contradicting beliefs, we are also capable of complicated, complex, contradicting feelings. We can be happy at the same time we're sad and at peace about some things while we're simultaneously like anxious about other things. We can be rejoicing about one thing and very frustrated about another all on the same day. So I get real confused when y'all ask me, how are you doing? I stand there wordlessly thinking and then you start to worry about me. But I'm, I'm not trying to worry you. I just can't figure it out. Switching gears slightly. Scripture uses the word magnify to talk about what we do as we pray and as we worship. Come, Psalm 34.3 says, come magnify the Lord together. I have a hobby that I picked up in the past, I don't know, year of taking pictures, which is all about pieces of glass that are shaped and polished to focus on something. They are magnifying something, so to speak. And so when scripture uses the word magnify, it makes me think of a magnifying glass, which has certain inherent distortions of what the Bible's trying to say. Let me give you an example. I use a magnifying glass to light leaves on fire, but that's not what it's for. Uh, to torture ants, but that was when I was a small child and I was, had some issues that needed to be really repented of. Oh, my word. But um, when you think of a magnifying glass, this is not in the notes, so part about torturing small ants. When you think of a magnifying glass, it's something that makes tiny things look bigger, which would be a pretty ridiculous use in scripture, wouldn't it? Come magnify the Lord with me. He's very small and not very powerful, but if we talk about him, maybe he'll look bigger. That's not what it means. Um, You can also use lenses to magnify something that's massive, but very far away. In other words, something that in reality is huge, but because of our perspective looks small. And that is not a microscope or magnifying glass, that is a telescope. What scripture is inviting us to do when we magnify the Lord together, sing about his goodness, talk about his goodness, pray to him, interact with him, is the telescope, not the microscope. It's to get our perspective more in line with the magnitude and the scope and the beauty and the size and the relevance and the virtue and the practicality and the brilliance of God, which looks so small we can't make it out. Jupiter's what, 11 times as big as the earth? But it sure doesn't look that way to me. In fact, even the moon looks bigger than Jupiter, and the moon's like a speck of dust. But that's because of perspective. In revival or health, we magnify the Lord, which means our perspective begins to line up with reality. What is actually big becomes big in our understanding. The more we See like Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. In fact, we'll never look like Jesus until we see like Jesus. Because Jesus' life is a byproduct of Jesus' faith. That's a strange way to even talk, isn't it? 
I think most of us don't even think about Jesus as someone we can learn from very readily. Uh, I shouldn't say most because I don't have, I can't, I don't know what are statistics on that. How would I know? I haven't polled anybody. But the ebb and flow of Christian spiritual health has less to do with how the church around you is doing or how your broader community is doing, and it has more to do with what internal state you and I have cultivated. The perspective that we have cultivated will either magnify the Lord or it will magnify something else. Something will dominate our understanding. Something will captivate our heart. Something will occupy our mind. In fact, I'm not sure it's possible to... I don't get... you got a wife and she says to the husband, what are you thinking about? And he says, nothing. And then all the men are like, <laughs> yeah, me too. I'll think about nothing for hours. I'm like, you're wrong. You're, you're, th- you're thinking about something. I don't believe you. You know I'm right. So to be holy, to be holy, it really helps to be whole. You realize, I'm, let's spell the words out for you. To be holy, H-O-L-Y, it really helps to be whole, W-H-O-L-E. Is that correct? Yes. Right, thank you. I'm glad you can laugh at me. It helps me that you laugh at me. Do you ever just sit there thinking and then laughing at how hilarious your thoughts are? Good times. Okay. The greatest commandment that Jesus highlighted, which is what now? What's the greatest commandment? Yeah, four components. Heart, soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's a fascinating... Heart, soul, mind, strength. So apparently loving God is more than just an issue of intensity. Strength would be the intensity component, right? Loving the Lord with all your strength has to do with the passion level. Some of us have the idea that all it takes is willpower. Like, if you want it, you can do it. It's just all about that. Well, that's a component. But Jesus' great commandment, bless you guys, enjoy the family reunion, and have a great time. Sorry to bring attention to you, but I love you. (coughs) Jesus is, is indicating there, it takes more than just willpower, although it takes willpower. It takes heart, soul, and mind. Not just will. And what, what do you do if your soul is deeply wounded and shattered, but you aren't acknowledging it? You can use all the willpower in the world, but you'll continue to relive the brokenness of the past and be incapable of properly loving God and people to the extent to which your soul is out of whack. Or what if your mind is unrenewed and you're believing all sorts of things from the world? Think you've been, we were all homeschooled in the wrong family, right? Ephesians 2 is very clear about that, that we all once lived in the kingdom of darkness before Jesus transferred us into the kingdom of light. Which means our minds have been formed by the satanic normal to have certain values and beliefs that if you follow your favorite pop stars, rock stars, newscasters, authors, friends at school, teachers, what's normal in the world is upside down in the kingdom. So let's say your will is like, I'm going to serve you, Jesus, but the things in your mind are so out of sync with the renewing truth of scripture That that's hijacking you. So your soul being whole. Your mind being renewed. Your heart being undivided. Jesus said the pure in heart will see God. 
J.B. Phillips renders the pure in heart those who essentially, like how does he say it? He says something to the effect of, well, let's just go with Soren Kierkegaard. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Let's be clear. It's to love one thing. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. Now, notice he didn't say you shouldn't try it. It wasn't a rule. He didn't say, hey, guys, stop that. Don't, don't try to serve God and money. That's naughty. He's not making a statement. He's not making a moral statement. He's making a statement of fact. It's not possible to do it. The human heart is not capable of being in love with God and money at the same time. One will win. James has this to say about like, someone whose heart is do- like, divided. That person, when they pray, he calls it double-minded. When that person prays, they shouldn't actually expect to receive anything from the Lord. They're unstable like a, toss, like a wave tossed to and fro. Or it's actually like what Jesus, when he's describing John the Baptist, he said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. In other words, someone who, when, the, when public opinion blows this way, they, oh, yeah, that's what I believe too. And when public opinion blows, oh, absolutely, absolutely. That, like such a person who's divided, I want what you want, God, but I also want people to like me. That's, that, see what I'm saying? Our heart has to be united. Our mind has to be renewed. Our soul has to be healed and whole. And our will surrendered. If we're going to be holy, we must be whole. Last week I made the case that, you know, heard enough, realize we need to change, learn enough, believe change is possible, receive enough, actually change. And as I continue to reflect on that, I kind of was made aware that a big part of that disconnect from the wall socket of receiving enough has to do with the parts of us that are not whole, that are not healed, that are not healthy. And that, and that my argument of, we can do this, boys, plug into the wall socket, it was kind of an appeal to the will. And I just want to say, yes, the will is involved, but more is involved. You know, I guess this would be a shameless plug for Sozo, is a part of the process. Uh, the ministry of Sozo, if you don't know what that is, it's just the Greek word for save, heal, deliver. The ministry of Sozo is simply designed to let the Holy Spirit pinpoint issues in your mind, your soul, or your heart, or even your will, that are out of kilter with Jesus, with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. And like, how many of you have gone through Sozo training up in here? I think the number is growing. Yeah, there's a good number if you look around. And those of you who are going through that training, would you argue that this is a beneficial ministry? And I just want to say, like, telling, sometimes telling people try harder isn't going to work. Because if, if I've got broken legs and I'm out back trying to push this car out of the mud it's stuck in, you can tell me to try harder all you want, but that's actually very unloving advice. <laughs> try, push harder, Tim. It really hurts, though. Maybe, maybe don't try harder. Maybe get help. And then come back and try harder. Maybe even try smarter, like tie the car to something that's moving forward. <laughs> Tow truck. So shameless plug for Sozo. But also shameless plug for like being a deep, deeply involved in the life of a church. If we want to be whole... 
on our own, it's very unlikely to happen. You know, we live in the modern era where uh, Ed Stetzer has said this a hundred times that I've heard probably, maybe, maybe that's exaggerated, maybe 23 times that I've heard. Ed Stetzer will say things like, the church is taking more blows than a low-hanging piñata on Cinco de Mayo. Church is not a popular idea. Church membership, church institution, denominations, they're very unpopular in our modern culture. Religion is bad. Spirituality is good. Relationship with Jesus is good. But congregations are viewed as inherently uh, inhumane, uh, mechanical devices of clunkery that will just hurt you. And, uh, you know. but, 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 I will say this. We sure do have better music now. And smoke and fog machines and lasers. Uh, which is funny to me. Guys, please don't use lasers ever. If you do, just know that you're hurting my heart. Very, okay. Sometimes, oh, my word. Good night. At that point, I'd just be in the back secretly working against me, like unplugging things. <laughs> But the church is taking more beatings, I think, than a low-hanging uh, piñata on Cinco de Mayo. And I, my shameless plug is that the church is still what Jesus called the light of the world. You know, Who's going to be the light of the world if everyone's just like, well, i got a podcast and a relationship with Jesus. You know what else you probably got? A series of wounds that you're not addressing that will never be healed outside of community. No one's hurt me as much as church. I'm just being real. No one has hurt me as bad as church. And no one has healed me as much as church. When I got saved, I got immediately sent to lay my life down for the people that Jesus laid his life down. So did you. So here's a shameless plug. Now let's talk about some scary things. When we say the words church discipline... Does that feel good? Do you like that? Immediately, like a wave of wonderful joy wash over you. I'm church discipline. What I think of is Amish people excommunicating each other. Uh, These are my ancestors. I excommunicate you because you have a bow tie, you know, or whatever, or you have too many buttons, or you have a big, too big of a button, or you have this kind of tire on your on your buggy instead of that kind of tire. So I excommunicate you. Did you excommunicate him too? No. Well, I excommunicate you for not excommunicating him too. And like, that's the kind of stuff that I can sometimes think of when I hear the word church discipline, which is very unhelpful. Because the word discipline and the word disciple are the exact same root word. And there's actually two kinds of church discipline, formative and restorative. And what formative church discipline is, is what we here call discipleship. In other words, as soon as you say yes to Jesus, like Gabby is saying yes to Jesus today and she's going to be baptized, as soon as you say yes to Jesus, you also say yes to joining a body of believers. And that in the body of believers, there's a, there's a pattern of shared life together that involves rhythms and rituals, that involves means of grace meant to help form us into the image of God's son. The, well, is she okay? The early church fathers used to refer to the church as the ark. As in like Noah's ark. Isn't that an interesting picture? And some, some of the church fathers used to say things like, 
there is no salvation outside of the church. I agree with that. On the other hand, you can strip that of its Christ-centered reality, misconstrue the quote, and try to make church involvement somehow this thing that saves you rather than, re- than Christ involvement. But the point is that this community is the primary means where Christ is formed in us. So I'm, it's a shameless plug for go deep, be vulnerable, plug in. All that to say this, formative discipline, restorative discipline. So when I say every one of you is in a process of church discipline, that's a truthful statement. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is learning from Jesus how to walk God's paths. A disciple is one who is being disciplined or trained by Jesus. The first words of Jesus in Matthew are his response to the devil. Unless I'm wrong, I could be wrong, but those are the first words I can remember. The first words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds, present tense, from God's mouth. Which is really interesting, right? In other words, which I think he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God says, for 40 years, I, I, I put you in the wilderness for 40 years. I did that. God says, I did that. I did that in order that I would humble you and teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot. There's probably a sermon series in there, probably a whole book in there. It surely means at least this. It takes more than food for humans to thrive. And what it takes is not just the record of what God has said. What it takes is real, ongoing interaction with the God who continues to speak. The real, not, not my doctrinal affirmation of what God has said, but the real surrendered interactive relationship with the God who is speaking is what is required. Of course, food, but much more than food is required for human flourishing. Typically, talking about being formed by Jesus, Typically, people advertise their virtues and hide their flaws. Actually, I should ask that as a question, shouldn't I? I mean, there are some churches that are advertising how sinful we all are. Oh, you know, we're just so terrible. I can't believe Jesus even loves us. <sighs> Good thing he died. That way we can stay the same and go to heaven. Ugh, that's really not the gospel, is it? But typically, the human, the sort of human, natural human motivation, my natural human motivation, would be to advertise my virtue and hide my sin. Jesus actually tells us to hide our virtues. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you already can, ref- you know what I'm talking about. When you fast, make it look like you're not. Your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will see this. He'll reward you. If other people see it and go, and you go, I'm fasting for the Lord because I'm just, you know, seeking revival for the for the nation. Well, you know, then you've already received your reward, says Jesus. And when you give, let your, like, don't let your left and right hand know what you're doing. And by the way, you're my left hand. Because we're a body. 
So don't give and then be like, hey, man, I gave Richard Kaufman a truck. Why don't you let all know I'm generous. I gave him a truck. Okay, well, then everyone might, might respect you, Tim, but you won't get a reward from the Father. Jesus, when you fast, when you pray, when you give, do it in secret for the Heavenly Father. And so many times he's very clear about this. To confess your sins to one another. Confess your faults to one another and the Lord will heal you. It's really interesting, isn't it? Now he does say, let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds. So he's not saying we have to hide everything that we're doing good. Some of what we're doing good isn't for us to be seen, but rather it's for our Father to be seen by the watching world. So you can take this thing too far and act like, I'm not going to pray in public because someone might see me. Get a clue. You're taking that thing out of its context. But all I'm trying to say here is, Jesus gives us these kind of teachings because he's trying to go after the root of our motivations. That if we'll practice his words, the practice of his words will actually do work we don't know it's doing on our motivations. And one of the main things that Jesus warned us about over and over is the yeast of the Pharisees. You know, they're in the boat. Hey, be on, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. And then the disciples, they're a little like us. They don't get it very quickly. Sorry if that feels insulting. But I don't always get it very quickly. And the disciples say, oh, Jesus is like, you should have brought more bread. And he hears this and he says, you guys, are you this dumb? Jesus says this multiple times in the Gospels. Are you really that dumb? Straight up, read your Bible. It's right there. It's like multiple times. Are you still so dull? How could you be that dumb that you think I'm talking? Ju- I just multiplied the loaves and the fish. You think I'm worried about bread. I'm telling you, you better be careful, guys. Because the same motivations that have led these religious leaders astray, they can lead you astray if you aren't careful to guard your motivations. The word that Jesus used to talk about the scribes and Pharisees is the word hypocrite. And now we have heard that word enough in church that we're pretty comfortable saying that that's not us. Which is not helpful. We should be much more focused in on maybe, it's, maybe there are components of me that are hypocritical. But the word just means a play actor, a stage actor. It's someone who... My kids are asking me this question. They're like this. They're like, we're watching a show the other night and somebody died or something happened and and the actors are just crying. And my kids are like, how do they do that? How do they do that, Dad? And uh, it would have been hilarious if I was like, watch this. And I would just cry everywhere. And they'd be like, you're amazing. And what I said was, really, really good actors know how to so put that Space that emotional, like like my, I've studied method acting, like not not studied, like I'm trying to do it, but like studied the concept, so that like Daniel Day Lewis is like my all time favorite. Daniel Day Lewis, he supposedly retired again, but he's done it before. He went off to Italy and made shoes for a couple of years. Then he came back and did awesome movies. Anyway, but method acting is this is this you so put on the character, like. Oh, one of the younger actors from that Lincoln movie he did said, I never met Dan, Dan Lewis. I never met Daniel Day-Lewis until we stopped filming and we were like out for drinks afterward and all of a sudden, for the first time, I didn't see Abe. He's like, on set, off set, before they yelled action and when they yelled cut, he was Abraham 
Lincoln. He didn't like put this thing on. Okay, here we go. We've got to get in my... He stayed on for the entire time they filmed. Weirdness. That is some serious commitment. And that's... I'm just trying to explain this to the kids. That's how. That's how. They convince themselves this is who they are. I guarantee you the scribes and Pharisees had convinced themselves that they were the good people. Do you understand why Jesus then could warn his disciples against the danger of not just fooling others, but fooling yourself? Jesus says, um, watch out when you try to go help your brother or sister take the speck out of their eye. Why don't you spend some time looking at yourself first? And pull the plank out. I'm trying to do that. Just so you know. Uh, a lot of what I do in this community is confront people. If I haven't confronted you yet, great. <laughs> I hope if that ever happens, you love me more for it, not less. I need you to confront me. That's what this church thing is that Jesus talked about. That's why... I, because of Garth's feedback, we changed our covenant thing to say, I commit to giving counsel and receiving counsel. It's a scary thing when we get to the place where we're acting loving while publicly, we're positioning ourselves for people to think we're loving, but really we're positioning ourselves for personal gain where we're acting prayerful and by the way I'm just, I'm just saying these are the things the Pharisees in the Bible did that Jesus pointed out acting prayerful when actually we're not seeking God's will to be done but our own acting generous in order to be thought of as generous not to help people acting knowledgeable about God and the afterlife and right and wrong because knowledge is admired Eloquence is influence. I've said for a while now, it's like I can talk in public fairly well, so people assume that I know what I'm doing with myself, which is incorrect. I feel kind of like a spark plug on, you know, I can do one thing pretty good, but if you don't do your part, I ain't going anywhere. You know what I'm saying? For real, I'm like, Jesus, I will be your spark plug, but make sure they get us where we're going, because I don't know what's happening. Um, For real. Yeah, help, Jesus, help. This stuff is pretty normal. I'm I'm like pushing into human motivations right now, aren't I? Like, just kind of pushing in there. And, And if you and I are very honest, like more honest than is comfortable, the amount of self centered what modern psychology calls ego thinking, the amount of self-centered ego thinking that most of us do in one day is, is like nauseating and disturbing if, if we were made to really see it clearly. Is it okay if I go here? And God's medicine for that is not look at it, hate it, and stop it. Bless you guys, love you. That's not his medicine. Look at that. You stop that. Shame on you. His medicine is by looking into his eyes and continuing to have relationship with him, 
we actually end up falling out of love with the things we used to love. And he's changing us. We have a part to play in that process. We have many parts to play in that process. And so do the people around you have many parts to play in that process. And if we reject that process and we're in a community, we should expect, instead of the formative discipline of that normal process of being formed, we should expect the restorative discipline of the church body to kick in. I'm not saying it does. A lot of us are scared of confrontation, so we don't do it. I mean, just this morning, someone told me uh, about somebody doing something on Facebook, and I talked to three other people, and they had a problem with it too, but nobody confronted the person and said, is this happening? That's disappointing for me to hear. Like, Jesus confronts people. When your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. When I first came to Gateway, it was Cannon. When I came to Cannon, went to church camp, and some, a dad came to me and was like, so-and-so gave my kid a cigarette. You better deal with this. And that was my introduction to how we don't follow Matthew 18. Are we tracking yet? Matthew 18. I'll just read it to you. If a man has a hundred... No, I'm sorry. Yeah, that is Matthew 18. I guess this is context. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for the one that's lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it's not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. If another believer sins against you... Notice how these two are related issues, aren't they? Sheep wandering away, it's the Father's heart to go after that person. Not changing the topic keeps going. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If they listen and confess it, you've won them back. But if you're unsuccessful, just give up and blog about them. Tell everyone. No. Take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Is this done anymore? Then if he or she won't... By the way, it's done. We do it. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Oh, that's... But Jesus, that doesn't feel loving. But Jesus, if the church does this, I can't bring my friends to church because they're going to be like, well, I'm not good enough to be a part of this church. But Jesus, they won't feel the love of, of God if we do this. Are we, are we tracking? Yes. Yes. Bunny's tracking. 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. Going back to the idea that Jesus is a genius. He knows... How life works best. 
And I think often we think we have a better strategy to love people than he does. See, when somebody's conscience is no longer firing, when someone has compromised a little bit here to where they sin enough in this little area that their, their conscience no longer is convicting them, no longer turning them away from evil. Sin a little bit, conscience is seared, compromise, eventually they feel comfortable with that, they can do a little bit more and more and more and more until eventually what Paul says, God can give them over to believe a lie. I love Bill Johnson, and because Bill prays for the sick and actually sees results, people who don't see results accuse him of having like an antichrist spirit or whatever, which is interesting to me. So it confirms what Jesus said, that if they say things like that about him, Jesus said, if, you call, if they call me the prince of, of demons, then surely they'll call you guys worse things if you follow me with integrity. And Bill says, talking about deception, how, how can someone who was a believer... How can someone who knew the Lord and who felt the Holy Spirit, how can they get to this place where they're completely deceived and they're serving Satan? And Bill says, simple. Compromise after compromise after compromise. And I'm saying, wait, what about our compromises? As the, as the body who saw something and didn't say something, who saw a sheep wander off and didn't run after it and didn't plead with it. And Jesus says, when someone has so thoroughly cast off restraint of the believing community and they've gone through that process, treat such a one as a pagan or a tax collector. Do you know a tax collector is not someone who's a Gentile or who's an outsider who's seeking spiritual life. It's someone who knows what's right and has been a traitor to their own people with such a one, 1 Corinthians 5, don't even eat. Why? Does that mean we yell at people and condemn them and tell them they're horrible and, and go to hell and enjoy hell? Have fun. Have fun with Satan. Absolutely not. We plead. We weep. But what it is to treat someone as a tax collector or a Gentile is to not have that casual, easy fellowship that lies to them about how their heart is with the Lord. To have that kind of casual, positive fellowship is to participate with them in the hypocrisy of their seared conscience. Is this a hard word? I think it feels way harder than it should. So here's really one of the things I want to say to Gateway. I am 100% committed to something that is scary, and that is vulnerable transparency. Some of you don't like that about me, because I say things about my personal life and my private thoughts that sometimes embarrass you. I will continue to do what I have been doing, because I'm terrified of the isolation of secrets. All right, I'm way over time. Go ahead and stand. That was weird. I didn't know I was going to go all those places today. Father, I ask that you would put grace on your people that we would love in spirit and truth. I ask God 
that we would be like Jesus, loving everyone and forgiving 70 times 7 those who turn from their ways and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That we not hold grudges. That we not seek people in anger that they're inconveniencing us, but that we sort through our first our own issues and get the log out of our own eyes so that we can go to people in a spirit of love and gentleness and make a gentle appeal with tears out of a heart of love. But God, I'm asking for courage for all of us that if we see something we would be convicted and say something. We wouldn't talk to each other about people without taking action, but that we would go straight to people. That we would not sinfully attack and withdraw from people. That's the way of the world. We would not attack and withdraw. That we would stay in relationships, stay confrontational, and stay redemptive. God, you know I haven't gotten this perfectly. I'm asking for grace to do it better. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. amen. We got a baptism. For those of you who are interested, Gabby's going to be baptized in the basement. Please, you're welcome to participate.